All right. All right. Excited to be speaking to you guys tonight. If you don't have the handout, my son has a few extra copies I ran. Raise your hand high and he'll give you a copy. There's a few that need a copy. So, this teaching is kind of a God timing thing because when we decided when the camp, the camp we were going to meet at in Wyoming, when they decided we couldn't meet there and then the pastors from around the M28, we huddled up and we decided let's do DTC anyway and then they all voted and said let's do it at the Rock Church in Utah. It's like, all right, let's do it. So I was like, well, I need to figure out a DTC with a bunch of your help in about three weeks. And I looked at the teaching schedule for the Rock Church, and Bill and I were doing a series of messages on the Olivet Discourse. So I was like, thank you, Jesus. I don't have to prep two messages and plan DTC in the next three weeks. So this is a teaching on the Olivet Discourse that I gave last week at the Rock Church. So if you're part of the Rock, God wants you to hear it again. If you're not part of the Rock, you're going to hear it for the first time, unless you're a fanboy or something. And then... Tomorrow night, Bill Young is going to do part three of the Olivet Discourse. So you're going to hear part two tonight, part three tomorrow night. So if you want to go back and hear part one, you could jump on our website and listen to that driving across the country on Sunday or something. So we are going to be in Mark chapter 13. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at the Rock Church. We've been so excited to have you guys here. It's been great. My title is Don't Be Deceived. And I think that fits in perfectly with our overall big theme of watch. One of the big ways that we are not watching is when we get deceived. So Mark, you may or may not know that, is one of the four Gospels. I hope you know that. It's the biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The shortest Gospel written. It's super action-packed, very chronological. In general, the Gospel of Mark is more action-oriented, but the Olivet Discourse is the longest sermon in the Gospel of Mark. i got to do the obligatory family intro picture. This is my crew. That's my wife, Krista. We've been married 20 years this month, so 20 years of marriage to my lovely and talented wife. Then we have five kids. Kale is going to be a junior this fall. He actually can't be here tonight because he just started working at Chick-fil-A. So, yeah. The other day I said to him, hey, thanks for grabbing that laundry. And he said, my pleasure. (laughs) And then Aiden is going to be a freshman in high school. He's right here. Haley is going to be an eighth grader. She's right here. Elias and McLean are two youngest. We used to homeschool all of them, and we've been transitioning them to public school recently. So that's my crew. So Mark chapters 1 through 10 cover the first three years of the life of Jesus. And then chapters 11 through 16 cover the final week of the life of Christ. He enters Jerusalem. He clears the temple. He has this Q&A time with the religious leaders. And then he goes outside the city, goes up on the Mount of Olives, and he preaches what is called the Olivet Discourse because he's standing on the Mount of Olives. They can look across the valley into the city of Jerusalem and they can see the temple. The Jews were very proud of their temple. It was this huge, magnificent building. And Jesus said to them earlier in chapter 13, it's going to be destroyed. And in the Jewish mind, the destruction of the temple was the end of the world. And so they say to Jesus, 
when is this going to happen, and what are going to be the signs? And so chapter 13 is Jesus answering those questions of when is it going to happen and what are the signs. And tomorrow night, Bill is going to get into the when component in detail at church. So this is what we're covering. And I just want to let you guys know that between all of the teachings, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, there are nine messages you're going to listen to on various aspects of end times, and that's insufficient coverage. There's so much detail. Supposedly, there are 150 chapters in the Bible that talk about end times. We could get into Daniel. We could get into Revelation. And you know, end times is a topic that is on people's minds right now. At the Rock Church, at least, maybe in your world, your people are relaxed about it. But here, I've had about 10 people ask me over the last few months, is this the end of the world? I'm like, I don't know. But between earthquakes, we had the biggest earthquake here in Utah in 30 years, so it rattled everybody, dad joke. <laughs> Pandemics, riots, food shortages, murder hornets, locusts in Africa. People are like, is this the end? We don't know. But we are just going to briefly touch on some eschatology, this DTC. This is honestly the tip of the iceberg. Eschatology is a study of what the Bible teaches about end times. I just have a few general points before we get into the middle of chapter 13. Sometimes in this chapter, there's these prophecies that are near and far. And what do I mean by that? Jesus is going to talk about all kinds of stuff. Some of it's far away, some of it's near. And you see, this is a picture of Salt Lake City looking through our downtown up to, that's Mount Olympus on the left, and then the double higher peak with the snow further back, that's Twin Peaks. And we've, my family and I, we've hiked those mountains, and they look like they're right by each other. It looks like you could, we actually, today when we did our hike, we drove up Big Cottonwood Canyon, which is between Mount Olympus on the left and Twin Peaks on the right. We drove up that canyon. It looks like from this picture, you could just hike down the ridge and go back up and go down and go back up, and you could just go from one peak to the other. But they're not close at all. There's a canyon between them. You'd have to go down, drive to the trailhead. We passed it today. It's that S-curve. You'd have to hike up from there. So sometimes when Jesus is talking, he talks about an event that's close, and then he talks about an event that's far away, and he just moves right from one to the other. And we're just looking at it. And we don't realize what's near and what's far. And you'll see what I mean as we get into the verses. And the second point when we're talking about end times is we can't lose sight of the big picture. Here's an eschatology chart that explains end times in one handy diagram. There, it's all right there. Boom. Now you got it. <laughs> you see that expression on the top there? Can't see the forest for the trees. Sometimes Christians can get like so fixated on a detail, they lose sight of the big picture. They're like, wait, 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 what's this? Where does this fit in my chart? The big picture is Jesus is coming back. It's what Rich talked about last night. It's what all the guys have been talking about. I started studying Revelation and eschatology when I was in high school about 25 years ago. I've read a bunch of books and listen to a bunch of sermons, and I have convictions. I've actually been reading Revelation every day for the last three months. But the point is, as Christians, we can get so wrapped up in the details, we lose sight of the big picture. The big picture, Jesus is coming back. He's going to judge the unbelievers and send them to hell, and he's going to reward the believers and send them to heaven, and the rapture fits into that. You can visualize Steve Nelson's message and Greg Miller and Rich, and you can kind of see it all and go, okay, heaven, hell, the rapture, Jesus is coming back. That's the big picture. And then my third general point before we get into Mark chapter 13 
is we need to avoid one of two extremes when we think about this subject. The panic doomsday prepper crowd versus the apathetic TV watching crowd. The doomsday prepper, they're stockpiling their bullets and their guns and their Bibles and their food and their compound. But what did Jesus say? He said, nobody knows the hour of his return. So history is full of Christians that like slam the panic button. They started prepping and now history goes by. Decades go by and we're still here. On the other extreme, though, are Christians that are apathetic about the return of Christ. They go, oh, Jesus isn't coming back soon. We got centuries. But to have that attitude is to miss the words of Jesus when he said he's coming like, what did we hear the other day? A thief in the night when nobody expects it. So one extreme is, I know he's coming back in 2020. I'm prepping. The other extreme is, Jesus isn't coming back for 100 years. I'm going to watch TV. May God give us the grace to live in the balance of those two truths. I'm going to pray. We're going to dig into Mark chapter 13. Lord, we thank you for DTC. We thank you for these last three days. God, we thank you for keeping us safe. Thank you, Lord, for hiking and tubing and food and fun and sports ball and all these amazing teachings and seminars. God, I trust you are speaking to every man, woman, and child in this room. And Lord, as we dig into Mark chapter 13 right now, I ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds, help us to understand what you want to teach us. Help us not to be deceived. Lord, help us to watch. Help us to be prepared for your return And Lord, I pray specifically that we would watch so that we are not deceived by false teachers. We say all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 14. So when Bill taught on this two weeks ago, he talked about persecution against the church. He talked about the gospel going to the ends of the earth. He talked about all these different signs that you could listen to online. So we'll pick it up in Mark chapter 13, verse 14. I had trouble with my colon there, so just visualize a colon right there. Anyway, Jesus says this, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those in who Judea flee to the mountains. This is a fascinating verse. That phrase, the abomination of desolation, is straight out of the Old Testament book of Daniel, written around 535 B.C., there's the references, Daniel 9, 11, and 12. Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 24 tells us explicitly when Jesus said this, he was talking about Daniel. And it's interesting, we now live in a time when you could actually see it. It's an interesting word. I looked it up in the Greek. It's the word see. We live in a day and age with on our phones, we could actually watch an event. Now, what is the abomination of desolation? It's a detestable thing and a cursed thing standing where it should not stand in the Jewish temple. In other words, a desecration of the Jewish temple. So in 535 B.C., Daniel predicted that somebody would desecrate the temple. So in 168 B.C., there was this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Greek king. He marched into Jerusalem, captured the city, defiled the temple, set up a statue of Zeus and sacrificed a pig in the Jewish temple. The Jews revolted. They kicked the Greeks out and they regained control of their country for a hundred years, which was a partial fulfillment of this passage. But there's more. Remember that whole near far mountain illustration thing. So Jesus is going to use it after that event. There's another event that happened after Jesus in 70 AD, the fall of Jerusalem. 
The Romans, led by General Titus, they captured the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. It was this multi-year siege. It was brutal. They murdered tons and tons of Jews. But again, that was only a partial fulfillment because of the things we're about to read. So it seems, biblically speaking, there's a third time that the temple is defiled. So it was defiled in 168 B.C. It was destroyed in 70 A.D., but 70 A.D. doesn't fulfill everything here because there's a passage on your handout there, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It talks about the man of lawlessness setting himself up in the temple for worship, and that did not happen in 70 A.D. Every stone of the temple was knocked down. Titus did not seek worship. He destroyed the temple. And even that phrase, let the reader understand, someone reading this in the future, Jesus is using a prophecy from Daniel. He's predicting an event that's just going to happen in a few years, the destruction of the temple, but then he's talking about something in the future, which shows us in this passage there's parts that are local, Judea, and global, the whole planet. So let's move on. Verse 15, let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. So Jesus is warning these people in Judea in the future, when you see this event happen in the temple, you get out of town. If you're on your roof, just run. If you're in the field, just run. There's an urgency to the words of Jesus. Verse 17, he said, Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray it may not happen in the winter. So it's always winter somewhere on the planet. So this shows us right now he's talking specifically about Judea. But he says, man, you don't want to be pregnant. You don't want to have little kids. This is going to be bad. There's an urgency here. And then verse 19. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Here's a classic example of the near-far principle This verse is the clearest indication that these events are bigger than 70 A.D. The destruction of Jerusalem by Titus and his army was a terrible event. Hundreds of thousands of Jews died. They were eating their own children in the city because it was such a brutal siege. But now Jesus is telling them, but that was a terrible local event in Judea. But now Jesus says this is the worst tribulation in the history of the planet. And this word tribulation, it means persecution, it means affliction, it means a squeezing. Like the whole planet is getting squeezed. In Matthew 24, in the parallel passage, Jesus says this is the great tribulation. This will be the most difficult time in the history of the planet, which is clearly bigger than 70 A.D., and it includes the flood, which was a pretty catastrophic event, making the tribulation a terrible event. So Jesus continues talking about the intensity of this coming tribulation. Verse 20, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. There's some insights from Jesus here. First, again, this will be the worst time in the history of the planet. If God had not shortened it, truncated it, nobody would survive. The wrath of God will be poured out on the planet. It will be so bad that it literally means no flesh, no human being 
would survive if God didn't shorten it. So we see the near far. In verse 2 of this chapter, Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And now he switches from a near prophecy to a far prophecy, talking about a global event so catastrophic that nobody would survive unless God brought it to an end quickly. So right here in this chapter on end times, we have global events and we have local events. We have events that are in 70 AD, and we have events that have not happened yet. So our first major point, if you're taking notes there, there is a period of great tribulation coming for the earth. And let's not skip past the word elect in verse 20. The elect is the group of believers that God has chosen. If you are a Christian, God has chosen you. And I put a bunch of verses on your handout. You can study it more later. But honestly, this is just a super encouraging word. In the middle of the worst event in the history of the planet, in the middle of that, Christians can rest in the fact God has had a plan to save me since the beginning before the foundations of the earth. Amen? All right, another sign, verse 21. There's all kinds of signs of the end here in this chapter. Verse 21, and this is where we're going to get into our part that I want to camp on. Don't be deceived, verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. Watch, watch, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So now Jesus is going to talk about false teachers. A false teacher is somebody who is teaching lies. They could be a straight-up enemy of God just preaching lies to lead people astray, or they could be a Christian who is accidentally telling a lie that they were taught themselves, or they could be somebody in between. And false teachers are not limited to religion. There are people teaching all kinds of lies that have nothing to do with religion. Bottom line, if somebody's teachings makes your love for God, the gospel, his word, or other Christians grow cold, you're listening to a false teacher. If anyone says, look, there's Jesus, don't believe it. Why? Because in the parallel passage in Matthew 24, it says when Jesus comes back as lightning that goes from the east to the west, everybody's going to see Jesus. In other words, when Jesus comes back, it's not going to be a secret. It's not going to be like, was that Jesus? I don't know. Was it? everybody's going to know. There will be no doubt. Now, why would people flock to false teachers, to false prophets and false Christ? Maybe these false teachers will promise safety and security in a time of chaos. It even says they're going to perform miracles, signs, wonders. So think about what that means. There could be somebody who says, I'm Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a prophet of Jesus. Let me do a perform a miracle. And we are not supposed to blindly go along with it. We must be discerning. We must watch. There could be even false Christ, false saviors who promise to help the world. And this is the part that has sobered me for the last few weeks at the end there. To lead astray, if possible, the elect. That's pretty deceptive. As Christians, how do we know if someone is a false teacher? The Bible has a number of warnings on false teachers. The Apostle Paul even said in Acts 20, false teachers will rise up from within the church, the pastors. Here's a few warnings. Number one, false teachers promote themselves. So is a teacher about making God bigger or making their ministry bigger? Number two, false teachers love discord. I'm not talking about the program, the chat program talking about Christians fighting. Number three, false teachers ignore or contradict the Bible. 
They might have their favorite verse they love, but there are passages and chapters and books they never touch because it talks about topics they don't want to speak on. Number four, false teachers are motivated by money or sex that eventually always comes out. Number five, false teachers make false prophecies. That one's pretty straightforward. Number six, false teachers create man-made, graceless systems, works-based theology. So if somebody gives you a bunch of rules you need to follow to show you are worthy, you might be listening to a false teacher. And then number seven, again, false teachers are hostile towards Jesus, the gospel, the Bible, and Christians. So some questions we need to ask ourselves. And again, you guys have to think way bigger than church and religious gatherings. The more I listen to this person, do I love Christians less? Do I think about God less? Do I not want to be around believers? Do I not care about reading my Bible anymore? Does my understanding of the gospel get wishy-washy? If it's yes to any of those, we might be listening to false teachers. And again, the sobering thing that struck me the last few weeks, this deception is so subtle, so misleading, it could even lead true Christians astray if that was possible. If that's true, and it's true, that means everybody I'm listening to and reading and watching and talking with could be potentially lying to me, a false teacher. But Josh, he's a Christian. His thoughts make so much sense. He's quoting the Bible. But if your love for God, the Word, the Gospel, or other Christians is growing cold, there might be something there that's broken. There are lies coming from false teachers that are so slick, so shiny, that almost true Christians would even fall for them. Jesus said in Matthew 24, at the end of the world, the love of most will grow, what? Cold. Why is that? It's probably because Christians are listening to just tons and tons of false teachings. Ultimately, the believers, the true Christians, will see through it, but it is incredibly deceptive. It should be a huge warning for us. So what should we do? Watch. I love this quote by Mark Twain, the author. He supposedly said, A lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. That is so true. We must be discerning now. We need to grow in discernment now. So our second blank, it is critical we are discerning. That's your second point on your handout. The Bible has all these warnings about not being deceived. Look at Romans 16, the highlighted part. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. 2 Corinthians 11. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Ephesians 5. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Colossians 2. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And then 2 Thessalonians 2, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. So many warnings in the Bible, in the New Testament on don't be deceived. There are so many deceptions in the world right now that Christians are listening to. And this is way bigger than church. I hope it's YouTube, it's podcasters, it's Facebook, it's Instagram, it's the news, it's blogs, it's all this stuff we're consuming. There's so many lies. It is critical Christians are discerning. We must be wise with who we listen to and read and watch and study, even the people that entertain us. Again, the test, the more I listen to this, the more I watch this, the more I read this, does my love of God, 
the word, the gospel, or other Christians grow cold. If I read this a bunch and I don't want to be with Christians, I don't love Christians, then maybe it's not God's voice. How do we protect ourselves? We must grow in discernment, in discerning God's voice and rejecting false teachings. So how do we do it? Four ways. You guessed it. Number one, be in the Word of God daily. Must be in the Word. You have to dig into it. We must train our hearts to listen to Jesus' voice. But, 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 but a Christian recommended this. A Christian forwarded me this book. A pastor told me to read this. Maybe they're just a Christian accidentally passing on a lie that they were taught. Does the teaching agree with the Bible or contradict the Bible? And I'm not talking about the obvious false teacher that's like, move into my compound. Give me all your money and your wife. I'm not talking about that guy. I'm talking about the false teacher that preaches a message that is so convincing that true Christians are like, gosh, that sounds right. Number two, pray for wisdom. Pray for discernment. It says in Philippians 1.9, Paul says, I pray that you grow in love, knowledge, and discernment. It is a skill that Christians grow in, mature Christians. Lord, help me to be discerning and not just believe everything I watch. So many people will watch a YouTube video. Oh, I know everything there is to know about that. Adults do it. Youth do it. We all do it. We read a book. We watch a video. We listen. Oh, that's it. That's there. It is. There's a lot of naive people running around. Number three, we must be in fellowship with believers regularly. This is like a safety check on us. If we just like read something or listen to something or hear something, we're not bouncing it off of other believers, we can end up in a really bad spot. Years ago, I was listening to this particular radio host all the time. Said a lot of good things, but it also caused all of this worry just to surge in my heart. And one night at dinner, my wife said to me, what's what's the matter with you? What's wrong? I was like, well, I'm just worried about the earth and its problems. My wife was like, that's a little above your pay grade. <laughs> I realized that listening to this particular radio host was causing worry to grow in my heart every day, and so I had to stop listening to it. If you suddenly have a new thought or a new idea or something you've never heard or read before, you watch in a video and you're like, well, that makes so much sense, bounce it off other Christians, be in fellowship with believers. Before you go, this is it, this is my new answer, and you believe it hook, line, and sinker, you might be believing a lie. If you don't see the fruits of the Spirit growing in your heart as you're consuming a teaching, it may not be God's voice. It says in Hebrews 3, encourage one another daily so that none of you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then the fourth one, develop discernment regarding the voices that you listen to. It says in Hebrews 5, Food, solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Constant practice. We have to constantly practice to grow in discernment to go good, evil, good, good, evil, evil, good, to be able to discern. We have to grow in discernment. Do you guys know that in 2020, we have more information coming at us than any people in the history of the planet? Social media, YouTube, podcasts, radio, news media, websites, books. We have more information coming at us than anyone in history. We have to be discerning. Now, how's the church in America doing? Are we getting deceived? There's two studies 
that do not paint a very good picture. Barna did a study of lots of Christians. 17% of Christians have a biblical worldview. You go, what's a biblical worldview? According to the researchers, it's a belief in absolute truth, a belief the Bible is totally accurate, that Satan is real, that we don't earn our salvation through good works, that Jesus lived a sinless life, and that God is all-knowing and all-powerful. Those six things, pretty basic. 17% of Christians believe all those. And then the second one there, according to the Pew Research Group, 61% of Christians have some New Age belief. This includes the belief that energy can be in things like trees, the belief in psychics, reincarnation, and astrology. So 61% of Christians have glommed on to one of those. So clearly, the church in America is already wrestling with significant deceptions. Where do we get our information from? Again, we have access to just volumes of information. According to the Pew Research Group, Facebook is the most common source for millennials to find their news. Men and women, we must know everybody has a bias. Everybody has an agenda. If you are only going to one source, one voice for your information, you will not see that. I watch what grows in my heart as I read or listen to different voices, and I try to read voices from a variety of perspectives. We must be discerning now. Who are the voices and friends and family that you listen to? Are you balanced? Are you praying? Are you in the Word? Are you checking your thoughts with other Christians? Are you praying for discernment? Do you seek counsel? Again, even Christians can be false teachers. They might be deceived on a particular point, and they're just passing along that deception. And again, I am not talking only church. You please broaden your perspective. I'm talking about cultural icons and media people and athletes and celebrities and politicians and teachers and bosses and neighbors and family and YouTubers and Instagram and Facebook. Everybody is teaching all of the time. And either it agrees with the Word of God or it doesn't. Let's go back to the text. This is a great verse, 23. But be on guard. Watch. I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus is warning us. He doesn't want us to be blindsided. He doesn't want us to be taken out. He's like, watch. Pay attention. He spoke these words to His disciples. He spoke these words to us, His readers in the future. Jesus wants us to know there are false teachings and deceptions coming. You've got to be ready. Men and women, we must go to the Word. We have to cling to God's truth. We have to see through people that claim to be Christians. They perform miracles, but what they teach does not agree with the Bible. Again, if your love of Jesus, your love of the Bible, your love of the Gospel, your love of Christians is growing cold, maybe you're listening to a false teacher. But Josh, he's just my late-night TV show host. He's so funny. But if you love Jesus less, you might be listening to lies. If you're just critical and judgmental of Christians all the time, you might be listening to false teachers. If you go, you know what, the Bible doesn't have the info I need for life, you might just be listening to false teachers. So the obvious question, the question between you and Jesus, are there any false teachings you are listening to? Jesus continues, verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven 
and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. So after the tribulation, before Jesus returns, there's going to be cosmic disorder. That's your fourth blank. Cosmic disorder will precede Jesus' second coming. These are things that did not happen in 70 AD. The sun did not go dark. Meteorites didn't start crashing into the earth. We're talking about celestial events. We're talking about the stable things becoming unstable. So a couple years ago, my family and I, we jumped in the car and we drove a couple hours north into Idaho with like two million people and we parked out in the middle of this field with, it was like a scene out of a movie. There's all these people just sitting out in this field in Idaho, millions of people and fields everywhere. And then the total solar eclipse happened. It was this crazy event. I do not know what Aiden was looking at in that picture down there. What were you looking at, son? Who knows? Anyway, it was an unbelievable event to watch the sun get darkened out more and more and more, and then it went totally black for a couple minutes. An amazing event. But imagine if this just started happening randomly. The word for that is terrifying. This isn't on any chart. Why is the sun going dark right now? It says in the parallel passage in Luke 21 that people will start fainting because of these signs in the heavens. And the word in the original text means they stop breathing. Either they faint or they die. There's going to be stuff happening in the heavens that is so terrifying that people start fainting because of these cosmic signs. So it's fascinating. Jesus moves from the destruction of the temple in verse 2 to the end of the world in verse 25. He moves from events that only impact Judea in verse 14 to impact events that impact the whole planet in verse 20, near and far. So our final verses, all of this celestial, terrifying events precedes the return of the king. Verse 26, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So Jesus left his planet bodily in 33 AD, but he's coming back. After all of these signs, it talks about wars and famines and earthquakes and persecutions and cataclysmic cosmic events. After all of that, our king is returning. The same way he ascended, he's coming back. It's kind of a wild painting. And this phrase, the Son of Man, is right out of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel saw this event. It's a crazy prophecy. You can read it on your handout later. But Jesus is coming back in the clouds to fix everything, to gather his church, the redeemed from the past, present, and future. Christians gathered from everywhere. And believers, we're going to be part of that group, which is so encouraging. But there will be two reactions to the return of the King. In the parallel passage in Matthew 24, it says this, Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth, they'll what? They'll mourn. They're gonna, it means cut to the heart, deep personal tragic loss. The whole world is going to watch Jesus coming back in the clouds, and they're going to start weeping with grief because they're not ready. They rejected the gift of salvation. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. Are you ready to lay down your efforts and put your faith in Christ alone? The first time Jesus came to save us, the second time he's coming to judge the earth. So bottom line, there will be people mourning because they're not ready to meet their king. But for the believers, there's a different reaction. In the parallel passage in Luke 21, it says this, 
Verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your head, because your redemption is drawing near. For the Christian, our reaction will be different. If you're listening right now and you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior, there is a day coming when Jesus is coming back, and if you're not ready for that day, it's going to bring you unspeakable grief. Accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today. If you've not made that decision, talk to one of the people that brought you, one of the leaders. And for the believer, if you've accepted Christ, then when Jesus comes back, we're going to look up and be like, oh, good. (sighs) Yes, (laughs) he's coming back. Our redemption is drawing near. We're going to live with Jesus forever in the new heavens and the new earth like Greg talked about. No more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering. Every tear will be wiped. It will be glorious. Our future, I love Greg's message because he kind of just opened this snapshot into heaven. We're like, man, that's going to be fantastic. It is going to be more glorious than we can possibly imagine. So our last major point Will the return of Jesus fill you with dread or joy? May it be joy. I'm going to pray. We'll do one more song, and then we'll do tie-downs, okay? Lord, I thank you that you did not want us to walk into your return empty-handed. You did not want us to walk into this unprepared. Lord, I thank you that you gave the Olivet Discourse to teach us I thank you, God, that you wanted us to see the signs. Lord, give us the grace to not be the doomsday prepper, stockpiling our bullets and gold. But Lord, help us not to be apathetic. Lord, give us the balance to go, you know what, Jesus can come back any minute now, but nobody knows. And God, I pray for us as men and women, old and young, that we would not be deceived. Lord, that we would watch, we would know there are false teachers that could lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Help that not to be us, Lord. Help us to know your word. Help us to be in fellowship. Help us to be praying. I pray for this room, these young men and women especially, Lord. Help them to grow in supernatural discernment. Just because everybody posts something. Just because all their friends are talking about something. Help them to see right through and go, is that in God's word? Is that true? Give us grace, Lord. We say all this in Jesus' name. Amen.